Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 188, Dr. Paul W. Newman's Spirit Christology, Part 2. In chapter 4 of the Gospel according to Luke, Luke presents Jesus as starting off his ministry in an interesting way. He goes to his hometown synagogue and he stands up to read a passage from the book of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What does this have to do with Christology? Maybe more than you think. This episode of the Trinity's podcast, the second half of my conversation with Dr. Paul Newman, author of A Spirit Christology, Recovering the Biblical Paradigm of Christian Faith. Dr. Newman, welcome back to the Trinity's podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be back. Dr. Newman, some theologians in recent years, and now even some conservative Christian preachers, particularly in the English-speaking world, present the one God as a loving community or family, even as a dance of three equal friends. In your view, does this fit well with the New Testament? Well, I know that the social doctrine of the Trinity allows for all kinds of imaginative descriptions of what God is like, but unfortunately, it it seems to me to bypass the connection with Jesus. <laughs> it gives some other philosophical or social reason for thinking of Trinity, where originally the Trinity was formed because they had a divine Jesus and a divine, and they finally figured out that the Spirit was divine, and so they had three, and they had to do something with it. But uh, all the speculations about the Trinity being a universal principle of communication or whether you have life or whatever it is, it seems to me that these all fail to bring Jesus into the picture convincingly. This is a really interesting topic, and you give several instances of this, which we don't have to get much into, but you give, I think, Moltmann and uh, who is the other one? Well, there was Tillich and Driver. Both of them have doctrines of the Trinity, and Driver, for example, has a necessary doctrine of the Trinity, but he doesn't believe that Jesus was God at all. Right. So the interesting phenomenon is people like Trinity theories so much that even when they get convinced that the Bible does not present Jesus as God or as fully divine or as having a divine nature, even when they grant all that, they come up with some, you know, out of left field philosophical speculative reason for being Trinitarian such as, well, Hegel right. said something interesting. That's right. This is, is really strange. <laughs> I mean, if you take away the divinity of Jesus, people just want to reverse engineer it. They want to come up with some ex post facto new justification for it because they love these theories so much. That's very strange. 
Well, that's right, and the, the, I think the big tragedy of it is that it departs from the exclusive monotheism of the Bible. And Tillich talks about three or four different kinds of monotheism, but he opts for the Trinitarian monotheism too, and, he, and based on Hegel's concept of life or something, but uh, the Bible talks about one God of the whole creation, and that in a global village that we live in now is really an important idea. To suggest that we who call ourselves Trinitarians somehow got exclusive knowledge of the reality of God that nobody else has, and so they're all deficient in their understanding of God by definition to start with, because they don't believe in a triune God. But you see, that departs from the biblical idea of exclusive monotheism, and it certainly, I think, departs from what Jesus would ever say. Jesus would never have said that he himself was God. I mean, even John's gospel with the high Christology has Jesus say, God is greater, the Father is greater than I am. Right. And the things that I say, I don't say, I say because God has sent me to say it. Right, and the Father is his God and our God. Exactly, and the universal God allows for a universal humanity with equal access and equal possibility of receiving the influences of the Creator. Back to this dance of three equal friends, people will say, well, look at the baptism of Jesus. You have the Father speaking, Jesus getting baptized, and the Holy Spirit's coming down like a dove. I mean, isn't that just the three of them all just acting in a coordinated way? Isn't that just a trinity? Well, I, I would say uh, it doesn't imply any cosmic theory about trinity. God in the Bible comes to people in a lot of different ways, through spirit and through word. What about wisdom? Wisdom was a female concept, I think. The New Testament is full of the wisdom of Jesus. Some people say Matthew's Gospel is has a wisdom Christology. And of course, the wisdom of Jesus is a precious part of his, inherit, his heritage. If anything has survived the uh, oral tradition, it's probably Jesus' wisdom as well as anything else. And, and yet, that's, the wisdom doesn't figure in the concept of the Trinity at all. So, I mean, uh, I don't find those other uh, examples very convincing. And, and I mean, uh, what do you do with St. Paul, who dedicates almost all his letters, blessings from God the Father and the, and, uh, the Son, mm -hmm. no mention of the Spirit at all. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, uh, it's, it's hard to convince me anyway that the Bible is basically Trinitarian in any substantive way at all. I don't think there's any convincing logic in the Bible for a Trinitarian view. So, Dr. Newman, if the Holy Spirit is not supposed to be a person within the divine nature, what then, in your view, is a biblical way to understand this talk about God's Spirit? Well, I think it's one way of talking about the mystery of the creative force in the universe that accounts for the intelligence and benevolence that are so widely manifested and present in the, in the universe both macroscopically and microscopically and telescopically. I mean, it's just amazing the intelligence and benevolence that are present in the creation. And spirit is a way of pointing in that direction. It's only one metaphor. There's others, other metaphors too. Wisdom is a good metaphor. And uh, I, think there's an, uh, I think spirit, as I say, if we have a theology of spirit, it can be broken down into a number of different things. I suggested uh, seven, seven different terms, energy, 
information, that's imagination, discernment, attitude, virtues, vocation, and ethos. And I think in each of these different ways, uh, the spirit functions in human existence and in the world. So it's a, it's a many splendored uh, show. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on that we can call spirit at least enough to indicate that we're praising the Creator or acknowledging the, the, the reality of the Creator. We're not the be-all and end-all. We're simply part of it. And the Creator is in us too. The Spirit is in us. Just the way breath is in us. And uh, the benevolence and intelligence are, are in us. And they're also in the little tiny ants that crawl around on the ground. And all kinds of other places. Everywhere you look, the world is full of the glory of God. So in your view, when we talk about the Spirit, we're just talking about God. But God sort of imagined as an invisible force and the cause of a lot of good things, including life. Is that right? It's basically God in action. I'm not saying it's the only term we should use. Jesus seemed to use the word Abba, and it sort of indicated that as far as Jesus was concerned, he believed in a God who had personal capabilities of engaging with human beings. And I accept that as a reality. I think that's part of the mystery of the Creator, that the Creator engages with living creatures, and especially with human beings. And uh, we receive and interact with this reality very fragmentarily, because we're distracted by the television <laughs> and American politics. <laughs> but, uh, Sorry about that. You know, <laughs> Uh, anyway, it's a it's a tantalizing thing to uh, try to imagine the realities of God. It's way beyond our capacity to embrace the whole picture. Where you know, even science is always recognizing that the more it learns, the, the more it knows it doesn't know. And it seems to be true that the mystery and the profundity of the intelligence and benevolence of the creation is just absolutely astounding. Human beings have a capacity to realize it and to respond to it and listen to it. And we have actually got a capacity and an ability to hear the Spirit nudging us in one direction or another or accomplishing things within us that we, we didn't uh, feel that we'd done ourselves. Where did that compassion come from? Why did we care? Uh, where did that artistic ability come from? Where did, that, where did those truths come from when the apple dropped on Newton you know it wasn't the apple that created the idea of the Newtonian paradigm of science or well, I don't know what Einstein would have said about the most recent paradigm of science but I would expect him to say something similar that, uh, that there's a, a tremendous capacity in the universe for human beings to receive information and energy and imagination and discernment, and attitude virtues, and vocation, and ethos. I mean, among other things, those things seem to be so obvious, you know. So those are our spiritual abilities, and, they, and you expound this in the book, actually, as being one way to understand the image of God that's in humanity, that we're alive or receptive to these movings of God, these, these actions of God. That's right. We're the image of God in a metaphor. The image is a dynamic metaphor like a mirror, we're not pushing it too far, but we reflect, the Bible says we reflect the glory of God.
So to go back to my example about Jesus's baptism, you think that in the biblical view, there are really two characters there. There's Jesus and then there's God and then the spirit coming down like a dove. You understand that to be an action of God and not a third actor? Oh, yes, I would say so. I don't think it's a third actor. I mean, the church has always said that the functions of God are indivisible. You know, some people make a mistake, like Rosado makes a mistake of dividing the external operations of God and thinking that the spirit can work uh, okay over there amongst the Hindus and the Buddhists and so on. But uh, the rest of God isn't necessarily there. <laughs> well, that saying's a real head scratcher. I, I wonder when Trinitarians say that, if they actually believe it, that in all of the external operations, the actions of the three persons of the Trinity are united because they seem to think that the Son does things the Father doesn't do and vice versa. It's a neat slogan, but I don't understand how it could be true on their views. Well, I don't think that it's true to the Bible either when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, or at least John says that. I don't think it's helpful to export Trinitarianism outside of the Christian community, because the problem with that is that you make all the Jews into Trinitarians, because unless you're going to say they didn't really know God, and the same for everybody else, mm. First Nations people and, the, and everybody else. Like, if you're going to define God in such a way that nobody can really have God without being an anonymous Christian, I mean, that's, that just doesn't make any sense. Well, there do seem to be two bad options there. Either they just don't have any interaction with God at all. They don't even, they can't even refer to God is what some people think because they're not Trinitarians. On the other hand, I know a few biblical scholars who they literally think the Jews were always Trinitarian or something close enough, which I think is a bizarre view. Oh, I think it's totally unfair to project that. Yeah, God's the father. God's the king of the universe. That's, that's what you might call conversion by definition. I mean, you, you define them as Trinitarians because you're acknowledging there is some kind of a God there, and they must be Trinitarian. But the problem is they're not Trinitarians. Right. And they shouldn't have to be defined that way, nor anybody else either. Yeah, and then in a Christian context, you'll probably go back to the standard definition of a Trinitarian, the more creedal understandings. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I ask Dr. Newman about the significance of the scene we heard at the beginning of this episode. Let's focus on the Bible a little bit, Dr. Newman. Several times in your book, you mentioned this dramatic scene in Luke chapter 4, which Luke presents as a kind of start to Jesus's public ministry. Why do you think that Luke 4 and the scene with Jesus in the synagogue is important for a New Testament understanding of Jesus? Well, it seems to be a case, if the memory is correct, of Jesus defining his own vocation. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Spirit has called me to preach good news to the poor, and so on. It seemed to be an expression of Jesus' self-understanding and a key to understanding the rest of the story and the other stories about Jesus. 
that uh, Jesus is defining his own vocation in terms of the Spirit. So the other stories, it seems to me, bear it out. It's important because it shows the priority of Jesus' concern for sociological realities, not just individual psychological realities. Like Christianity has been so focused on the psychological benefits of forgiveness and how good you're going to feel when you're forgiven that they, they have often downplayed the social implications of salvation. And uh, that's, that's, that's to the harm of the world and to the harm of Christian faith and everything else. It's to miss the main, one of the major points of Jesus' ministry and his preaching, which is reflected in that first choice of his scriptures in Luke. By the way, you know, there's a lot of doubt cast these days on the authenticity of oral tradition. But, you know, I think we don't understand oral tradition very well, and uh, that a lot of communities, especially Aboriginal communities, understand the authenticity and reliability of oral tradition. There are scholars who study the way oral tradition works so that uh, can see that oral tradition doesn't convey a word perfect necessarily count of the way things were. As it goes through different people, there are minor modifications made, but the main point usually survives the oral tradition. So I think there's a lot more reliability in the stories of Jesus than, than a lot of people are willing to give to him. They say, oh, well, this is Matthew and this is Mark. And there's certainly Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and they put their spin on everything, but there's enough substance there to, for us to come to a fairly realistic understanding of who Jesus was and what he said and what he was like. Yeah, I did notice in the course of the book that you were resisting what I would call fashionable skepticism, an extreme skepticism about the New Testament that, oh, you know, you just, you maybe you could know that Jesus existed or just a very few bare facts, but you just really have to be very critical about all this. So you accept that it's reasonable to think that Jesus did think of himself as the Messiah? I'm not sure about that because it was a, there's a, there's a famous messianic secret, you know. He but, does, yeah. Uh, keep it quiet in, in the synoptics. I, I accept the argument from some biblical scholars that say there was more than one concept of Messiah extant at the time. And that Jesus, of course, didn't accept the military Davidic concept of Messiah or the restoration of Israel that the Zealots were hoping for and so on, even though some people may have wanted him to. But I think there was another one in which Jesus combined the idea of servant and Messiah. Uh, C.H. Dodd claims this was a genuinely creative innovation in thinking and credited to Jesus, and I think he's probably right. So Jesus had a concept of Messiah, but he didn't want to use the term in a context where everybody thought the Messiah was going to throw the Romans out or something like that. So I, 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 think he, I think he did accept his, his vocation as Messiah. So if you're any kind of Messiah, I mean, that just means that you're a human being and that God has called you and sent you and empowered you for a certain kind of ministry. That's right. It seems like it rules out being God. Yes, I think so. <laughs> so the basic idea of your spirit Christology is that Jesus was a man who was filled with God's spirit. And I mean, that's the basic idea of it, right? That's right. 
since the second century, at least maybe the late second century, a lot of people have looked at the New Testament and said, hey, Jesus is forgiving sins, he's healing the sick, and he even accepts worship. I mean, don't you have to be divine to do all those things? How would you reply to that sort of argument? I don't see Jesus accepting worship. I think uh, Jesus clearly understood worship is for God. I think he had an understanding of his vocation and accepted his vocation and uh, taught on the basis of that and called for followers to imitate him and uh, to follow in his way. But five or six times in the synoptics, Jesus says, if you'd be my disciple, you must follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. I mean, that seems to me to be a, a clear uh, human thing, not a divine thing. <laughs> not claiming divinity. And the things that he does, forgiving sins and healing the sick and casting out demons, are later done by some of his followers. And he says in John that his followers will do even greater things than he's doing. That's right. But that doesn't show that they're divine. No. About worship, Dr. Newman, I take it that when you say he doesn't want worship, you're using worship as, by definition, something that only God gets? Yes. So then passages like the end of Matthew says that some worshipped. Would you translate that differently, like gave him honor or something like that? Well, I don't know. I, I think people have a common tendency to worship the ones who are extremely significant to them. Like I, I say, for example, like St. Joseph. You know, Joseph, nobody calls Joseph divine. And yet if you go to Montreal and St. Joseph's Oratory, you'll find a whole line of people lining up to make prayers through Joseph. Mm-hmm. Now, it looks like they're worshipping Joseph or they're worshipping Mary. I think even the, the Catholic Church, they might say they're worshipping Mary. I don't know. But that's, a, I think, a loose, term of, loose use of the term worship. If you're going to worship other human beings, then you have a polytheism, it seems to me, of some kind. And uh, I don't think that's true to the Bible. So, I mean, I, I would prefer to use the term worship in relationship to God only. You know? I don't think it's worship when people pray in the name of Joseph or any other saint, or Mary either, for that matter. Yeah, they make a distinction, I guess, between a higher and a lower kind of honor, and then the higher kind can only be given to God or to the members of the Trinity, and the lower kind can be given to saints. Well, I think we have we can have an awful lot of respect for the saints. I just recently read a book by Mark, by Mark Twain on the biography of Joan of Arc, and the, the last sentence in the book said she was the greatest human being who ever lived. <laughs> you know? Wow. Not many people would say that, but a lot of people would say, well, she's at least a saint. Um, I'm a, sort of a Protestant in the sense. I don't think we should worship anybody but God. Do you think that Jesus is worshipped in Philippians 2 or in Revelation 5, that vision of the heavenly throne room when the Lamb is brought in? Well, I think Revelation is a really problematic book to start with. I think it's uh, John Cross, and I think it says it's the most violent book in the Bible. And uh, it raises all kinds of questions. But uh, even if... Uh, one of the biblical authors wants to tell us that we should worship Jesus or worship somebody else, I still wouldn't accept it, you see, because I don't think, uh, I think John's letter of John was right when he said we, should, we have to test the spirits by Jesus. And uh, Jesus 
wasn't worshiping anybody else. When we return, I ask Dr. Newman about New Testament passages that say that Jesus fulfilled an Old Testament prediction about Yahweh. Dr. Newman, there's a type of argument that's become very fashionable recently, at least in American evangelical circles. And it's an argument that the New Testament, in some sense, identifies Jesus with God. And the argument goes like this. The New Testament authors say that Jesus is the fulfillment of certain Old Testament predictions. And those predictions were about Yahweh. And so that's how they're sort of sneaking in the point that Jesus is God. So a famous example would be the passage I just mentioned, Philippians 2. Paul says that uh, every knee will bow to Jesus, and he seems to be referring to or quoting a passage which originally was about Yahweh, every knee will bow to me. So what do you think about this type of argument for an implicit divine Christology, or they sometimes say a Christology of divine identity? I think simply because it appears in the canon doesn't make it unquestionable. There's, there's a whole lot of biblical scholarship now which is challenging the idea of Heilsgeschichte, you know, that, that the, the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old. And of course, a lot of the New Testament writers thought that it was. Well, they like to use the Old Testament to authenticate and support their interpretations and reports on Jesus. There's a lot of work in modern biblical scholarship which traces those ties between the New Testament writers and the Old Testament text. But uh, we don't worship the old, the New Testament writers. We worship God, and we accept the authority primarily of Jesus, not of, the, of uh, Matthew, who likes to toast people in hell a little bit too much, or something like that, you see. <laughs> so that uh, we have to test the spirits of a canon by Jesus too. Some people say, well, okay, cheating on that, but I think that's true. We go to the Bible to find Jesus. And uh, that if we find somebody else who's saying something that doesn't fit with Jesus, don't, we have to make a choice. We should choose Jesus, you see, if we can possibly discern that choice. So in that particular case, you, you think that Paul is identifying Jesus as Yahweh, but you just disagree with Paul? No, I don't think he would be at all. Oh, okay. Why Why not? Like, why? what's wrong with their argument then? The Old Testament passage was about God. It says that Jesus fulfilled it. Why would they do that unless they were saying that Jesus was God? They, I mean the New Testament authors. They're ruling out, it seems to me, they're ruling out the possibility that the risen Jesus, the Jesus who lives in eternity, or whatever that means, is, is still a significant force. Or a, or a medium or an agent of uh, God's, of his vocation. And that uh, simply because it sounds like 
God from the Old Testament. I don't think that means that Paul was saying that it was. There's another possibility. I mean, uh, he says, for me to live is Christ. I mean, and, and so on. Uh, I'm not a great Pauline scholar, but I, I don't think he was uh, making Jesus into God. So then would the idea be that God is having every knee bow to him through Jesus, like an agency interpretation? I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure what Paul thought. Paul said so many really good things, but uh, Paul has also gone along with the scapegoating interpretation of Jesus' death, and which I think came out of his Pharisaic background. He was a Pharisee before, and uh, he, he, he helped to entrench that in Christian tradition in the way he speaks about the death of Jesus, and it was to the detriment of Jesus. But so many other things that Paul says are really wonderful things, but he's an ambiguous person like everybody else. There's no reason we have to accept uh, everything he said as, as the gospel truth. We have to test it by the Spirit of Jesus. That's in the scriptures of John. John tells us to do that, and that's part of his wisdom, I would say. It's, it's something that makes sense and is true. You should do that. And I don't think Paul was calling Jesus God. I mean, the same with those those uh, passages about the pre-existence of Jesus. There's a lot of study going on about the pre-existence of Jesus, and a lot of the biblical scholars say that the Bible never talks about the pre-existence of Jesus. It always talks about the pre-existence of a, of a, of a mode of God's activity or something like that. The pre-existence of, of wisdom doesn't mean that Jesus was wisdom in the creation. The Bible doesn't even say that, as far as I know. We have to be careful in reading the scriptures that we really keep Jesus central to the thing, to the understanding of it, and to test what we're reading from different authors by what we know about Jesus and the general major consensus of the thing. And Dr. Newman, as you're expounding your spirit Christology, and you do discuss a few other 20th century people who are trying some similar things, like LAMP, you distinguish intrapersonal spirit Christology from interpersonal yes. spirit Christology. Could you tell us what the difference is? Well, interpersonal means the relationship Jesus had with, with God was an interpersonal one, meaning two persons. An interpersonal means it happens between two persons. Interpersonal would be a relationship that goes on within one person. For example, a person talking to themselves would have an interpersonal relationship, whereas an interpersonal one is you have two persons talking, and it's uh, there's some distance and difference between them. So the interpersonal one can see Jesus as being full of the Spirit and in relating to God in spirit. The interpersonal one would have to say that Jesus is God, and although they speak about three persons and one God, they qualify that to mean that there's only one being of God and one agent in the sense of God. You can't split up the operations of the divine, that wherever God is, the whole of God is there, not just part. That's been a fundamental axiom of Christian thinking. Even though the language we use talks all the time about Jesus doing separate things from the Spirit and so on. And it's confusing, but uh, that's the problems with Trinitarian thought, I think. The intrapersonal 
axiom of it, that there's only really one person of God, not three, at least not three persons in our common sense of individual acting agents. There's only one acting agent of God. Whenever God acts, the whole of God is there. Whereas interpersonal means Jesus had a relationship with God and wasn't, wasn't God himself. Right. So your spirit Christology is strongly on the interpersonal side. Absolutely. You don't yeah. think it's just God relating to himself? No. God in one mode, talking to God in the other mode, that type of thing? No. I don't think the, even the, 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 the theory of the Trinity doesn't really allow that in some strange ways, because you can't divide the external operations of God. You can't say that the Spirit goes off and works with the First Nations people, uh, but Jesus had nothing to do with it, or God had nothing, or it was God and the Spirit went maybe, but Jesus didn't go. If you want to say Jesus went too, then you're converting all those First Nations people to Christians somehow, anonymously. They don't they don't know it, but they were actually influenced by Jesus. Right, because anonymous Jesus Christians, yeah. just because they worship the Creator or something. Yeah. Right. Dr. Newman, I know this is a very obscure topic, but it sounds to me like what you're saying about Christology is like what some of those who historians call dynamic monarchians said, people in the late 100s and the early 200s particularly. Have you ever looked into that? Do you think that's true? I'm not an expert on those. I've done some general reading of, of the early times, and uh, I got a strong, a clear impression from a number of different authors, contemporary authors, that prior to uh, Nicaea, prior to the conflict between Athanasius and Arius, that the main line of the church was fully committed to the, the humanity of Jesus, and they were wrestling with the idea of, well, how do, you, how do you unite that humanity with the idea of deity or divinity? Whereas, for soteriological reasons, the other side, Athanasius, felt that the logic of salvation was so strong that it required Jesus to be fully divine, period. And they weren't much concerned about his humanity, except to say that it was somehow subsumed in the Logos. Right. Yeah, I've, I've tried to look into these monarchians myself. It's incredibly difficult because we don't have any of their writings. But it seems to me that some of them thought that there was a divine element in Jesus, but that was just God. And they may have cited the verse in John, the fourth gospel, where Jesus said that it's the Father in me who's doing these works. So that sounds like what you're saying, that yes, you could say there's something divine in Jesus, but that's just God. In other words, God's working through his spirit. It's not a second deity, as they called the Logos, a second God or a God who's distinct in number and so on. One of the main reasons for, for saying that is because... If God was working in Jesus and making Jesus divine, then when God works in anybody else, does that make us all divine? And the idea that we're all, that the, the, the way of salvation is a process of divinization is unbiblical. The Bible starts off saying we're created out of dust and that we image God, we reflect God, and more or less fragmentarily, but we, we reflect it. And Paul certainly goes into the idea that if we get closer to Jesus, we'll be able to reflect God more accurately and fully. We'll become more human. We won't become divine. We'll become more human. 
because humans are the ones who reflect the glory of God. And uh, if that's true of everybody, it doesn't make Jesus divine because he didn't. You see? You know, am I making that clear? He, if it happened for Jesus and it makes him divine, then why doesn't it make everybody else divine too? And some people say, well, it really does. But that's, I think it's really unbiblical. It's not a good idea. Yeah. If you mean divine in the sense that the one God is divine, I mean, it just it's a contradiction that somebody could be made into that. I mean, that's right. You either have that status or you don't. Maybe if they mean it just, you know, being immortal or morally good or just more godlike, if they mean that, maybe that's not incoherent or at least not obviously wrong. Second Peter says that we become partakers in the divine nature, but I mean, that can't mean that we have the essence of God because that would make us additional gods or That's the right. same God, which won't fly. That's right. Yeah. There's something very interesting toward the end of your book, and this goes against the grain of mainstream tradition, Dr. Newman. You say that the idea of adoptionism has gotten a bad rap in yes. mainstream tradition. Tell us about that. Well, Paul speaks about we're all adopted as children of God because the Spirit embraces us and we become, in a sense, godly. We don't become God, we become godly. We're into the family of God and so on and so on. But the church has always rejected adoption for Jesus because it diminishes the divine initiative, supposedly. In order to be adopted, he'd have to have achieved certain quality of merit in order for God to accept him as, as a son. But problem with that is, of course, you have, you have God changing when Jesus becomes son. But some people say, well, of course, God knew before the foundation of the world that Jesus was going to be faithful. And so he made him son right then and there and gave him the, pro, the, the function of the logos. But that becomes a whole metaphysical fantasy creation, you know. It, and it departs so far away from Jesus as a human being who starts off walking in the, on the ground. Like I think it was John Knox, the scholar, said, you can have the pre-existence and the deity of Jesus, or you can have the no pre-existence and its humanity. But you can't have both. You can't have both humanity and pre-existence. It just doesn't work. So-called protological passages that the scriptures, the New Testament has, which suggests that Jesus existed from the foundation of the world, have to be understood in some other way than pre-existence of the person Jesus. And that makes sense, I think. I mean, uh, it just doesn't make sense to make Jesus pre-existent before the foundation of the world, unless everybody is. But that's, that's, that doesn't make sense. That's a very poor idea of God, I think, too, to, to have God foreseeing everything knowing how I'm going to be faithful today, tomorrow, and the next day, or not, as the case may be, and maybe deciding ahead of time to predestine me to either heaven or hell, and I'm getting what I deserve because God knew from the beginning what was going to happen. But you see, that whole idea of predestination is a bad idea, too, because it it takes away the, the, the possibility of, of freedom, any kind of real freedom that human beings have, it diminishes the concept of covenant between humans and God, that they're working together at the movement of the Spirit. Humans respond and reflect the glory of God and work with God in covenant to care for the world. And uh, 
to diminish that idea is harmful to the world. I'm starting to preach. So, Dr. Newman, then, how should we interpret passages like, say, John 17, 5, where Jesus refers to the glory that he had with God before creation? Is he not remembering these glorious times that he had way back then? If not that, what's going on there? Well, you have the problem in John 2 of John 1, you know, the Word was with God and the Word was God. That's one of the favorite passages for the pre-existence of uh, the Trinity. Right. And uh, the pre-existence of Jesus. In fact, John, James Dunn, in his book on the origins of Christianity, Christology, says this is the only passage really in the whole Bible where the pre-existence of Jesus is affirmed. But many other biblical scholars don't agree with that. They say, no, that's not the case. What was going on there was the pre-existence of wisdom or the pre-existence of Logos, but the wisdom and Logos were not Trinitarian members. They were aspects of the functioning of God, mm-hmm. amongst many others, hand and arm and you know all kinds of things, mm-hmm. including spirit. So I'm not sure whether John had a Trinitarian pre-existence idea or not. I would sort of doubt, I doubt it. And when a guy like James Dunn, who has written a whole book of 600 pages or something trying to track down the pre-existence idea, and he says the only one is in John 1, I'm sure he hasn't ignored the ones later on in John. So, I, I mean, I can't cite all these things from memory, but uh, I think there's a quite a strong consensus amongst contemporary biblical scholars that the pre-existence passages, the protological passages, as they're called, in the New Testament, do not signify a Trinitarian pre-existence of Jesus. So with John 1, that makes sense that the Logos just isn't supposed to be Jesus. So the Logos is eternal, but that doesn't mean that Jesus is. The Logos becomes flesh means that God's eternal wisdom or something becomes expressed in, in the man. What about John seventeen five? Wouldn't that just be divine foreknowledge or something like even before the world jesus had glory but that's just to say that god had always intended something like this to happen i think so i'm not uh, i'm really not qualified to uh, speak on that particular point at least i can't remember it well enough to, to know what to say except to say that i don't think it's a sufficient reason for proclaiming a pre-existent jesus i just don't think that's the case even if that was John's idea, I don't think it was a good idea. <laughs> well, and you said before that you didn't think that a human could have always existed. But the New Testament is very explicit in calling Jesus a man. Oh, Even yes. John's gospel, Jesus says he, he refers to himself as a man who's told you the truth. Oh, sure. I mean, John's gospel is often used as the basis for the deity of Jesus, but it doesn't bear that out. Jesus, what he says about God... Uh, in relationship to himself, doesn't bear that out. Jesus says quite clearly at one point, the Father is greater than I. Don't make a mistake. Right. You know, don't make, don't mix us up. Yeah. It's interesting that John would say that. I think you remember it. I think that's a valid memory of Jesus. Yeah. yeah, I've been concerned about John, the fourth gospel, for a long time. And it seems to me that he does you know, make Jesus say very exalted things about himself. And, and it says very exalted things. He's the way, the truth, the life, and so on. But it balances that by sharply distinguishing Jesus from God all throughout. You know, no one's ever seen God. 
but we've seen him and he's a revealer of God. The father is his God. Uh, the father's the one true God in chapter 17. But people, they sort of like to cherry pick their passages from John. Oh, I, and I suppose we all do, but still, yeah, I don't think John as a whole, like you, just as you said, he doesn't substantiate the load of theological claims that are given to him in terms of the Trinity. Like, uh, I think Jesus, even in John, Jesus would, would, would abhor the idea of being called one of the Trinity. I don't think Jesus would have accepted that. You know, or certainly not a, a, the kind of Athanasian Trinity where, you know, the mathematics of three and one are spelled out in painful detail. You know, I, I don't think so. Well, yeah, I mean, he says, I'm not making these claims for myself. There's this other one who's testifying to me. <laughs> That's God. <laughs> That's right. So. so, I mean, it's it's amazing that the church has, has hung on so doggedly to the Trinitarian concept. But I think it's because of the soteriology behind it, which some people are saying very nastily, that it was of great benefit to the clergy. <laughs> you know, the question of cui bono, who, who benefits from this uh, idea of God uh, that makes the church the dispenser of salvation and gives that power to the clergy alone. Like that, that's a nasty idea, but it, but it seems to be true. In the fourth century, when the bishops seized this power of determining all doctrinal questions, I mean, they were very much consolidating their power. And as you point out in the book, they were starting to say that there's absolutely no salvation outside of the church around this same time. That's right. And so, yeah, it's probably not a coincidence that those things are happening around that time. It kept continued to develop until the church was selling, you know, dispensing uh, salvation on payment of cash. So the Protestant Reformation protested against that, and even the Catholics now would admit that there was a there was a valid protest there. Right. But the church still continues to have the clergy dispensing the benefits of atonement through the Mass and, uh, and other ways. But uh, I don't think that fits in with Jesus either, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Doesn't fit in with it doesn't fit in with the spirit of Jesus at all. The sacramental doctrine of grace. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I ask Dr. Newman about the topic of Reformation and whether he's had any interaction with people who call themselves biblical Unitarians. Well, perhaps you'll agree with me, Dr. Newman, that the Reformation still has a long way to go. Or maybe there needs to be another one. I think it'll come. I think that the forces that are drawing human beings more and more into community and dialogue and respect, the necessity for respect to make the world work, the forces are converging. I, I like Teilhard de Chardin's idea, you know, that in a sense, evolution is 
aiming forward towards uh, coming together in the right way. I mean, if it isn't in the right way, it's going to be a horrible ending. And that's a possibility too. But we continue to be hopeful. And I think we need to preach and work for the hopefulness of, of humanity. We need to dialogue with people of other faith and traditions and seek common commitments and common ground and common respect and uh, work together to make the system work. And it could work. We could make it work. But it's got some great challenges, the arms race and a whole lot of other things. What else do we have to hope for, you know? Right. If we, if we don't hope in the spirit, what do we hope for? Are we, are we hoping that violence is going to do it? I don't think we so. We don't seem to do very well at solving things on our own. Dr. Newman, I appreciated the book. I, I think it's insightful about the New Testament. And like I said, I think in, the, in last week's episode, it opened up a, a window on a world of biblical scholarship to me that was a little before my time. And I think it's valuable. And I think some of these views have kind of gone out of fashion, at least with a lot of conservative Christians. But I hope a lot of people read it and really wrestle with this idea, can't we understand Jesus as a man called to be the Messiah with a unique vocation and then uniquely filled and empowered by God's Spirit to do that? And why should we be afraid to rethink these things if we're going back to the sources like the Protestant reformers did? Let's go back to Jesus if we possibly can and uh, be true to walk in his way, which is the, the way of the life in the Spirit. <laughs> and... Uh, I really like what you just said. I think that's hopeful, and I hope, I hope it works for more people. And I think it will. Uh, I think uh, the spirit will blow in those directions, and, and because that's our hope that it's the spirit that will move people. We're not going to do it with a, pro, with a propaganda campaign or anything else. It has to be the spirit working in people, and the spirit works in amazing ways in people. So we have real good reason to hope for it. Dr. Newman, before we go, have you ever interacted with Christians who call themselves biblical Unitarians or Christian monotheists? No, I haven't. There aren't many Unitarians of that kind in Canada, as far as I know. I think there was a Unitarian Christian church in Montreal at one time, but I never was close to it. I never lived there or got to know them or anything. The thing I don't like about the Unitarian name is that, again, it prioritizes the singularity of God as the main agenda, whereas I want the main agenda to be let's love Jesus and see where it goes. And uh, if you can love Jesus, imitate him as he calls for, walk in his way. If you cherish some kind of a Trinitarian interpretation of that, as long as it doesn't subvert the mission of Jesus and the meaning of his gospel, I mean, that's okay with me, but I'm not out on a crusade to destroy Trinitarians. I just want people to pay attention to Jesus in a way that makes sense in the modern world, and that is in respect to other people, and that uh, enables us to get on with making the world a better place, and following in this, the the, uh, the way of Jesus to do that. And it's not to say that Trinitarians haven't always done it, haven't done it in the past, but a lot of the Trinitarian ideas seem to me to undermine that emphasis. Uh, the emphasis on individual salvation is so strong. I mean, um, I've had people call me up and say, I heard your sermon last Sunday when I was preaching in Kamloops, 
And they said, uh, the reason I'm no longer a United Church member is because my church tells me that if I believe in Jesus, I'm going to go to heaven. And that, that's what I want. And so you're wrong. You're just wrong preaching that way about the goodness of lawyers and things like that. <laughs> uh, we carry on. That's interesting. So what, what I hear you saying is that you're not anti-Trinitarian. You do sort of, at one point late in the book, say, well, I am espousing a Unitarian view, although I don't like that word. Your preferred term is... Um, Exclusive monotheism. Exclusive monotheism, yeah. yeah. A, lot, a lot of these people uh, who I'm referring to, which are, well, all over the world, a lot of them don't like the name Unitarian either because of the association, especially in America, with Unitarian Universalism. But uh, it's interesting. There are a lot of people coming to similar conclusions from different starting points. That's why I asked. I'll put some links on this podcast episode uh, to some of these other folks. Sounds good. Great. Well, I really appreciate the chance to talk about this with you. Uh, I hope it was clear enough that people could get some idea of what we're trying to say. And also that we need to start listening to hear what the Spirit is going to say to us whoever we are and whatever we're doing, whatever our vocation is, let's listen and see if we can see which way the wind is blowing. And if we're testing it by Jesus, we'll see the wind is blowing in the direction of compassion and justice and truth and mercy, and not in terms primarily of psychological satisfaction, although that could be part of it. Mm. <laughs> that sounds like good advice to me. Dr. Newman, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you, Dale. Goodbye. Today's thinking music has been Even When We Fall by Philip Wagle. I'd like to send a word of thanks out to our friend John B. for again serving as our voice of the Lord Jesus. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share the podcast on social media. Help us to get the word out on Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and so on. Another thing you can do is give us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. For some directions on how to do this, just go to trinities.org slash blog slash review. You can support the podcast by giving us a one-time or a monthly donation through PayPal. Just look for the orange buttons on the right side of any blog post. Every little bit helps. And if you shop at Amazon.com, enter that website through a blog post. If you do this and then make a purchase, then without increasing your price, we get a small percentage. Lastly, make your voice heard. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our very active Facebook group at facebook.com groups trinities. We're always open to show ideas, guest suggestions, objections, and so on. Sometimes I even respond to feedback in an episode. Don't forget then to share, to rate, to chip in when you can, and to talk back. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time. Don't forget to love God with all your mind.